That's it. So we're in First uh, Samuel chapter 18. And I want to just start by reading a verse in Psalms. It's, this is from Psalm 77, <coughs> verse uh, 13, and then verse 19. Um, it says this, and it says, Thy way, or thy path, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God? I saw that. I know, but I saw it too. <laughs> just kidding. Just a sign. It's a sign. <laughs> Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? And then in verse 19, he says, Thy way, or thy path again, the second time now, he says, is in the sea. And thy path in the great waters, and thy footsteps are not known. Um, one of, one of the, the, the reasons why we study the life of David, or why we studied the life of Abraham, or why we would look at any character, in fact, the reason why these testimonies are in the Bible before us, is so that we might have some understanding of uh, God's way, or the way of God um, in, in shaping a man. You know, anytime a person gives their life to the Lord, he begins a work in that life. And, and we rest in that. You know, Philippians 1.6 says, He that began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. But the way that God um, does what he does, the work that he does, is often the confusing part. And what the psalmist is saying here to us is that the way of God, he gives us basically two indications. He said, first of all, it's in the sanctuary, you know, and he's speaking of the assembly or the place where the people of God meet, you know, and, uh, and, and that's, that's kind of the irrelevant part of what I want to share with you, but it's important, you know, that God works through his church. He works through uh, his people. But, but the greater uh, truth that, that's given there is that his way is in the sea. His paths are in the sea. And, and why, what that means is that they are unknown. I mean, when you see a path that's on the earth, you can define it, you can map it, you can draw it, you can lead someone on it, you can um, establish landmarks. All, all of that is, is real in an earthly path. But when the path is in the sea, it's a path that is undefinable. It's very nebulous. It's very changing. It's very, uh, um, uh, you know, just, it's, it's almost confusing in a sense because the sea, is, it's liquid. It's always moving, the currents. And, you know, there, there's, there's trends, but there's nothing exact about it. It. You know, one year it can be different from another year, though things are kind of going in the same direction. And, and, and very much the ways of God are like that. They're very hard to define. And, and what God is going to do in our lives in order to shape us into what he wants to make us is in large part very undefinable. His way is in the sea, and his paths are, are known only by him. That's what the psalmist says there, that his, his steps are unknown. The prophet Isaiah, in chapter 55, verse 9, he says that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my ways, that's God, above your ways, and my thoughts above your thoughts, and they're past finding out. Meaning you can't know exactly what he's doing. But the, 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 the good thing, the, the, the silver lining in, in, in that, um, is that although we don't know exactly 
the Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God says, I don't change. And so though his ways are undefinable and his ways are unknown and they're past finding out, they're very consistent. And so when we look at Abraham or when we look at David, we see the way that God took them. We, we in a sense, we, we're looking at from a satellite view, we're looking at a picture of the ocean and we're seeing the path that God took this man. And, and in that, what we, can, uh, what we can gain from it is that we can see and, and gain some insight into what God may be doing in our lives. Why are we going through the things that we're going through? Because although it's undefinable, it's very consistent. God is consistent in the way that he does uh, what he does in a life. Now, what we must understand is that almost everything in, in life, in the world, requires preparation, right? I mean, if someone is going to be a police officer, they don't just one day get handed a badge and, okay, well, you're just a police officer. That's what you are. No, there's a preparation that, that must be accomplished. If someone's going to be a medical doctor, then there are years of, of preparation and practice before that person is ever given a patient to work on or to operate on, uh, or to do something with, or give medical advice to, because you would want that. You want that person to be ready. You want to know that that person knows a thing or two about what they're doing before they do it. An athlete, you know, someone who's going to compete, especially on, a, uh, on, on somewhat of a large platform or stage, there's years of preparation that goes into uh, that person's performance or participation on, on the team or in the event that they're in, and that's necessary. We understand that. And so also in the things of God, every one of us, every one of God's people has a calling. There's a purpose that we've been called for. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 9 says that he, God, that we're his workmanship and that he has before ordained or planned good works that we should walk in them. So God has a plan. He has a purpose for us. But just like anything else, there's a preparation that precedes the fulfillment of that purpose. And so too, as we look at the life of David, we see that he was a man he was called of God. God had a plan for him, and his plan was that he would be the king. But in order for him to become the king, there's a great preparation that has to take place within his life. Without that preparation, he's not going to be ready in the day when, when, when the time comes that the throne is going to land upon his head. And God is committed anytime there's a calling to give to us everything that we need to make sure that we're fully prepared when that day comes that, that our calling is to be fulfilled or, or that it is to be met. And so what is it now that God is going to do in David in order to prepare him and make sure that he's ready in the day uh, that, that, that he is? God has a pattern in the way that he does this. Number one is that he'll build up a person. He'll build them up. And that's essential because uh, there has to be a, a degree of faith. There has to be evidence. God is in my life. But after the buildup, then comes the breakdown. And that's a, a much more important and a much more valuable part of the process and a very essential part of the process. And so there's a breakdown. And then after the breakdown, there's a stripping down to absolutely nothing. And that, again, painful and difficult, but so very essential. And so what we've seen thus far in David very, very uh, greatly is the buildup. We've seen the calling. Samuel's come and, and anointed him with oil. 
We've seen David called into the palace. He's uh, established a relationship with King Saul and with the servants of Saul. He has a reputation among them of being wise and being a skillful musician and and a, a cunning soldier and a man of war. We've seen David take down Goliath. We've seen exploits of faith taking place in his life, victory over uh, the difficulty and over the opposition that kept him back from that. So we've seen David being built up. And the first five verses of chapter 18 are, are really David coming to the summit of this per- first part of his preparation. Verses 1 through 5, he kind of reaches the pinnacle of this build-up part of, of God's shaping of him. And then once we get into verse 6, then we'll start to see the breaking down. And that's going to go on for about 15 chapters. <laughs> so you get about a chapter and a half of you know the build-up and, and some excitement. But then the oh-so-necessary and, and oh-so-valuable breakdown of what will happen after that as God prepares David to be a wise and good uh, king. And so in chapter 18, what we have is we have what God is adding to David, and then second of all, uh, where God is placing David, and then third of all, uh, God beginning to break down David, and then um, at the same time we get to see what is happening to King Saul in all of this, uh, also a very good reflection for us to consider for our own lives. And so uh, David's elevation now in Saul's administration, notice in chapter 18, Verse 1, it says, first of all, that it came to pass that when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul. And so uh, this is right on the heels of the conquest of Goliath. David has been summoned to stand before the king. He appears before him with the head of Goliath in his hand. And, uh, and and Saul inquires who David's father is because um, did, Saul had made a promise that whoever kills Goliath, his father's house will be tax-free in Israel. And so Saul inquiring, who is your father? And also because Saul has uh, the intention now of bringing David uh, into a full-time position in his cabinet or in his administration. And so a negotiation is going to have to be made between uh, Saul and David's family and all of this. And so after that, it says, um, after this, this interaction between Saul and David, it says that the soul of Jonathan was knit or knit together with the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, what God adds to David at this stage of his uh, um, shaping or development is that God gives to him uh, a friend. And, and it's a friend on a much deeper level than just simply an acquaintance or someone who's in common or someone who's kind of in, in school, a classmate or, or something. But the Bible says that their souls were knit together. That there's a fellowship that's established between David and Jonathan that's on a very deep and intimate level. And the reason why these two were knit together in just the practical sense is that they were, in a sense, two peas in a pod. They were both very much concerned with the same thing, which was the glory and the fame of God. You'll recall just a couple of chapters um, before this, Jonathan was with his armor bearer and they were standing outside of an enemy fortress and Jonathan looked at his armor bearer and just said, hey, you know what, it's nothing with God to deliver with a whole army or with just a few men. Maybe God will just use you and me and we could go in and take out that whole, whole battalion. 
And, and of course, that's exactly what happened. They, Jonathan, operating in faith, uh, moved upon that faith, and he saw a great victory. And when Goliath came down and David, I'm sorry, Jonathan saw in David what it was that moved him to go and fight this giant, there was an immediate attachment is that me and this guy, we think the same way. And what, what we think the same way about is not just how to fight or that we should fight, but we think the same way in, in terms of our relationship with God. And, and when you find another person in your life that has the same drive towards the things of God as you, there's an intimacy and a fellowship that automatically happens in the spirit that goes deeper than any relationship that, that you can have on a human level or with the foundation of a human reason, like recreation or, or, or you know, work or something else, class or anything like that. And I think that it's probably one of the greatest gifts that God can give to a man who loves God to have a, 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 a friend like David had in Jonathan and that Jonathan had in David. This is something that David needs at this period of his life because of what God is going to bring him through. He's going to need a Jonathan in his life. And I believe that every man needs a Jonathan in his life. Someone, not just an accountability partner, not someone that you just meet at a group like this and say, okay, well, you know, you be my partner and we'll pray together. And, you know, this is not something that was made by men. This was something that was made by God. And, 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 and what an incredible gift that it is. And I think that when we get our eyes on the Lord and he becomes the first thing in our life and his glory becomes the thing that we uh, long for the most, then the other people that are in the world that have that same focus, there's going to be a drawing together of it. And it's an important thing. David's going to need it. Now, he's going to lose it. God's going to strip that even away when God brings David down to nothing. But at this point in David's life, he needs a Jonathan, and God provides one. And so their souls uh, were knit together that day, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, just an important thing to consider is uh, Jonathan at this point is probably at least 10 years older than David. And secondly, Jonathan is the heir apparent to the throne. And both of those two things are, are important considerations in the context of, uh, of who David was and what's to come next in his life. And so God adds a friend to David. Then in verse 2, it says that Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. And so at this point, David goes from being a part-timer in the ministry to being a full-timer in the ministry. He now has a permanent position in the palace with Saul, and God is the one that's orchestrating this and bringing David into this close proximity with Saul, and we'll see God's intention and God's purpose in doing that as we move through the chapter. And then it says in verse 3 that then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. Now, we don't know exactly what that covenant is, but we can uh, presume based on what it says in verse 4. It says, And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him. That would be uh, the, the royal signet of his position as prince. And he gave it to David. 
and his garments, even to his sword and his bow and his girdle. So that is the armor, uh, the royal armament that belonged to Jonathan, that is now also committed unto David. And so uh, what this basically signifies is that Jonathan makes a declaration to David saying that what I see in your life is that you are God's choice for what I would be in the realm of man's choice. Now, in the natural realm, Jonathan would be the heir to the throne because he's the son of the king. And what Jonathan is saying when he looks at this young man, David, is he's saying that in in the spirit and and in the will of God, what I see in your life is that you are the one that's going to occupy the position that Saul intends to give to me. And so he gives him the robe, he gives him the clothes. Now, David probably gave them right back, <laughs> you know, and, and Jonathan continued to wear them. But there's a covenant being made, and Jonathan is verbally expressing to David that I see in your life that you are God's choice for what is yet to be. Now, I don't know whether or not David already knew this. We're not told when Samuel came that Samuel expressed to David that he would be the next king. We don't know that. I almost think that he did not, but but he could have. You know, it's not said. It doesn't mention it. But at some point along the way, it becomes obvious and apparent uh, to David that that is the plan of God for his life. It's it's kind of indicated by Jonathan uh, here, although David never takes makes the assumption upon his own life throughout the story. A little bit later on, Abigail, who's just you know, a stranger from a strange family in Israel is going to say, hey, listen, we all know that you're going to be the next king. You know, so, so you know, it, it, this is something that people are recognizing and seeing in David. And it's important um, in, in the whole process of all of this because we see God adding to him now concerning the promise of what is yet to come. And so we've seen a person added, Jonathan, a position added, he's in the palace, and now a promise added in the covenant between David and Jonathan. And now as we um, look onward into verse 5, we see the progression of David's growth. And so what it says here, it says that David then went out whithersoever Saul sent him. And so uh, the first thing that we see concerning David's um, progression and David's attitude in the palace is that David was a man who was willing to do whatever it was that was asked of him. That wherever, wherever Saul wanted something done, David was willing to do it. He, he never took the position before Saul that, well, no, I, I do giants. You know, I, <laughs> I, I've already proved myself that, I, you know, I'm way beyond uh, some of the more menial things in the kingdom. You know, uh, I, I do bigger things in the kingdom. But that wasn't the heart of David at all, is that he, he saw where he was as a, as a great privilege, and there was nothing too small for David to do. Whatever Saul asked him to do, David did it. He didn't, he didn't ever say, well, you, the, the Spirit's not on you anymore, or the anointing that I have is, is greater than, than what that is. He did it. It says also that, and he behaved himself wisely. That is, that David was constantly aware of where he was, that is, in the palace amongst the servants, and he never lost sight of who he was. That is, that he was a youth and that it was a privilege for him to be there rather than an entitlement. And, and so what this means is that David kept a constant awareness whenever he was around people, and he kept things in context. And sometimes we refer to this in life as um, being on. 
You know, we, we think, you know, when I go to work, I have to be on. When I'm home, then I can be off. <laughs> you know, and when I'm in the car, I'm off. But when I'm at work, I'm on. When I'm at church, I have to be on in the whole thing. And what this is basically saying is that David was always on is that he never lost sight of, of who was around him and, 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 and what was expected of him in, in, um, in things, and that he was diligent to behave himself in a wise manner all the time. Then it says, nextly, that Saul set him over the men of war. And so David now is given a title, he's given a position, and we don't exactly know what this division is of the men of war, but it probably was a very low-ranking uh, uh, division of men that were a part of, of the general army of Saul. We're going to see later in the chapter that David is set uh, as a captain over a thousand, which is a higher-ranking position, but here he's just set over the men of war. This is probably probably an office job. It's probably more of an administrative role than it is um, anything else. But nevertheless, it's the position that David lands in when he comes into the palace. And then it tells us this, that he was accepted in the sight of all the people. So that is those that were outside of the administration that were just in the kingdom, those that were being ruled over, they approved of David's position among them and the way that he conducted himself. And then also he was approved in the sight of Saul's servants. So the other staff, the people that were serving alongside of them, everybody loved David. That there was something about the way that he conducted himself. We know what that something was. It was the Spirit of God uh, at work in his life and the position uh, of humility that he had chosen to take wherever he was. And so David is a man very much on the increase here. Now, put yourself in David's shoes for a minute. He's probably, at this time, around 20 years old. So you got a 20-year-old. Anybody 20 here? Any 20-year-olds? Yeah, no, it doesn't count. <laughs> you missed it by eight. <laughs> you know, picture a 20-year-old. I mean, you're basically talking about a child. A 20-year-old is a child. And yet we see this man very much on the way up. He's, he's very close to the king. He's very close with the king's son. He's being elevated. Everything is going well for this young man. And he has just got to be on cloud nine. And if I was, if I was David, and I'm not David, and I'll never be a David, <laughs> but if I was David, I would be going, God, you are amazing. You are so good. I can see how this whole thing is going to play out. <laughs> Goliath, now the palace, the position, the favor. Wow, Lord. The success, you are, you are too much in things. Well, now here comes the train wreck. David didn't bring it on himself. The Bible says, as surely as sparks fly upward, man is born to trouble. <laughs> you ever seen when someone pokes a fire? Where do the sparks go? You ever seen one go down? <laughs> no. 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 Things get stirred up. Guess which way the sparks fly? Upward. Watch what happens next. Verse 6. It says that it came to pass as they came. When David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing. Now, David didn't ask for this. If he did, then, oh boy, <laughs> you know, he's got a thing or two to learn, but it, but it happened nevertheless. And they came out to meet King Saul with tabrets and with joy and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played, and they said, 
Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Okay, now I'm sure this this song was extremely pleasing in the ears of, of a young David who, who just is marching on valiantly. But there's another man who hears this song who's not so pleased. Notice in verse 8, it says, And Saul was very wroth. In the Hebrew, the indication is that there was a slow-burning anger that began to stir in Saul at the hearing of these words. Something about what he hears in this song stirs up and stimulates something that exists inside the heart of this man and it manifests itself in a rage or in an anger. Now, I want you to understand something here, is that any time we respond to something that happens in our life, you know, just like Saul is responding to something that happens. It's just a song that someone is singing from their heart. And it's triggering a response of anger and jealousy inside the heart of this king. Understand this. It is not the fault of the person singing the song, nor is it the fault of David about whom they are singing. It is something that exists in the heart of Saul that is undealt with. That's the problem here. And anytime we respond to something that happens, our wife says something to us, and we go, and the hair stands up, you know, and we feel that little thing, you know, or our kids do something, you know, anytime there's a response in us, it is not the fault of the person that is doing whatever it is that they're doing, even if what they're doing is wrong. The response is because there's something in me that is undealt with or unchecked. When the Bible says, be not, be angry and sin not, or when the Bible talks about fits of rage as, uh, as being sin, or uncontrollable anger, or when the Bible talks about jealousy, or when the Bible talks about lust, if those things exist in me, it's not the fault of the person who made me angry, or the woman who made me lust, or the, the person who I'm jealous of. It's not their fault. It's my fault. I'm the one that needs to, to deal with what's going on in my heart. And so Saul's response to this song, the issue is something that's going on inside of him that's been undealt with. And so he was very wroth and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? I mean, that's a little extreme, right? I mean, he might as well have the crown in all of this. And what's exposed in this thought that's laid out for us here is what's important to Saul. What's important to Saul is the preservation of his position and of his kingship. And he sees in David a man more talented than him, a man more highly favored than him, and thus David, rather than being an asset to the kingdom that's supposed to exist for the glory of God, now David goes from ally to enemy because he sees David and perceives him as a threat to his position rather than a blessing and a benefit in his life. Saul is forgetting, maybe he never knew it, but at very least he's forgetting a couple of things that he should know very well at this point in his life. And it's important for us to understand these things. First of all, Saul is forgetting that in the kingdom of God, ability is given by God and not by men. There are people in this world that are 
capable of slaying thousands. And there are people in this world that are capable of slaying ten thousands. And the person who is behind who slays thousands and who slays ten thousands is God and not men. If a person is designed and wired and programmed by God to be a slayer of thousands, then no matter what that person does, they're not going to be a slayer of ten thousands because God didn't make them to be a slayer of ten thousands. And so it isn't up to the person who slays to determine what their capacity is. To the Corinthian church, the apostle Paul wrote, and he said, what do you have that you did not receive? You boast about your gifts and your talents. You boast about your riches and your wealth. But who gave you those things? So how is it that you can be puffed up one over another because of the things that you have in your life? It's not from you. It's from God. He gave it to you. John the Baptist testified when they came to him and they said, Hey, John, Jesus is baptizing and making more disciples than you are. And John looked back at that and wisely said, A man can receive nothing except it is given to him from heaven. That was John's response. Jesus was a slayer of ten thousands. John was a slayer of thousands. They're saying, Hey, Jesus is slaying more men than you. And John said, a man can receive nothing except it's given to him from heaven. God's the one that ordains who slays thousands and who slays tens of thousands. And it's none of my business how many you can slay or how many someone else can slay. What's my business is who did God call me to slay? And what is it that he wants to use me to do? Ability is given by God and not by men. What the women were singing was correct. And what Saul was hearing was right. David is a slayer of ten thousands. Saul, only a slayer of thousands. The second thing that Saul forgot to consider, and this would have solved his entire problem if he just could remember this or if he knew this, is that in the kingdom of God, position is not based upon ability. It's based upon calling. Meaning that with God, a slayer of thousands can be king even if he's not a slayer of ten thousands. Who gets to be the king isn't determined by who is the most skillful or who can kill the most people. Who gets to be king in the economy of God is the one who God appoints to be king. And when a person can realize and understand that the position that they occupy in this life or in this world or in this kingdom is appointed by God and not determined by ability or by men, then that person is going to be successful and satisfied in the thing that God has given them to do. I don't have to be the most talented person in the room in order to occupy the position or even the highest position in the room if that's God's will. I have to be called. That's what makes the difference. And Saul forgot that. And, and he looked at things completely in the realms of men. And therefore, he allows jealousy to cripple him in this whole thing. Now, if I get this, if I understand this, that ability is from God and position is from God, then what that allows me to do is that it allows me to enjoy and operate in the position and the calling that God has given to me and get out of the way for everyone else to fulfill theirs. I can be content if I'm only a slayer of tens, if that's what God's made me to be. And I can now be blessed in that and I can let you slay thousands or let you slay ten thousands. And I don't have to get and stand in the way of that because, well, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the king in this room and I can only slay ten. So no one in this room better slay eleven. <laughs> you know, 
that's a problem. Whose glory am I seeking? What am I in it for? If I can't grasp this, not only do I lose effectiveness in my own calling, but now I lose my capacity or I, I have to use my capacity rather to break everybody else down under my level. Understand? So let's say I'm a slayer of thousands and you're a slayer of ten thousands. Whatever. I can't handle that. If I can't handle that, then all of a sudden jealousy grips me and I become ineffective. I'm no longer a slayer of thousands. Do you know that Saul, in this very moment, in this very moment, Saul went from a slayer of thousands to a slayer of zero? Because from this point on in Saul's life, he is going to make it his aim to kill one man. Do you know who that man is? David. David. And he will be unsuccessful even in that. He cannot even kill one man now that he's allowed jealousy and envy and pride in this manner to enter into his life. And any person who allows this type of jealousy into their life becomes effective to the point of zero in what it is that God has called them to do. And 100% of your ability to slay thousands or ten thousands or tens or whatever it is that God has given you is now going to be aimed at cutting everyone else down to the point where they're less than you. I have to use my energy to make you less effective than me. So rather than slaying thousands, I'm going to gossip about you. I'm going to dig dirt in your life so that I can you know, ruin your credibility and knock you down. I'm fruitless. Now you're going to be fruitless too. This guy's a train wreck. He's a mess because of jealousy. Jealousy is a dangerous thing in the heart of any human being. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 4, it says that anger is cruel and wrath is outrageous. But who can stand before envy? When, when envy grips a human life, it cripples that human life. There are two things, men, if I could exhort you in this, there are two things that, that you should never allow to happen to you. Number one is never allow yourself to become jealous of somebody else. At all expense, whatever it costs you, don't let that happen. Don't become jealous of what someone else has or what someone else can do because it only hurts you. It doesn't hurt them. It hurts you. The second thing, and this is harder to do, but it's just as important, is never do anything to try to make someone else jealous of you. Never do things in such a way where someone looks at you and they say, man, I wish I had what they had or I wish I could be what they are. Because let me tell you something, when someone is jealous of you, guess what happens? You go down. Well, they, they're going to try to take you down, <laughs> right? Anger is cruel. Wrath is outrageous. But who can stand before envy? When someone is jealous of you, with the type of jealousy that Saul has for David, watch out. Now, it wasn't David's fault. He didn't, he didn't orchestrate the band. All right, here's the words, everybody. It happened. <laughs> you know, but don't ever try to make it happen. That's just pure foolishness, pure folly. You know, sometimes you see someone walking around with bling and driving, a, you know, the Mercedes and, you, you know, they're doing, they're working it. They're doing everything they can to say, look at me, you know, look at me. Fools, fools. And it says in verse nine, and Saul eyed David from that day forward. So 
if if Saul's eyes are on David, who are they not on? God. Who else are they not on? The Philistines. Who else are they not on? The people that he's called to serve. His eyes are on David now. That's where his gaze has been fixed. And so it came to pass on the morrow. And so now David uh, goes from this way up here. Good things happen. <laughs> Whoa. It came to pass on the morrow, one day, that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied in the midst of the house. So he's prophesying under the influence of an evil spirit. He's prophesying by demons. And David played with his hand as at other times, and there was a javelin or a spear in Saul's hand. Now, what you never want to be in the same room as is someone who's demon-possessed that hates you with a spear in their hand while you're, while you're singing worship songs out loud, which gets the devil mad. <laughs> you know, not, not a good scenario uh, for anybody, and yet that's where David finds himself. And so in verse 11, it says that Saul cast the javelin, he threw the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even to the wall with it, or pin David to the wall. And David avoided out of his presence twice. Now, I wouldn't have to avoid out of his presence twice, because I wouldn't come back, <laughs> you know, <laughs> for the second one. But David, so just, just imagine David, just from, Lord, you're so good. Here I am in the palace. Hallelujah. We worship you. Eyes closed, playing his guitar as at other times. He opens his eyes. He sees Saul with his face twisted and a spear. And then he hears the sound. You know, as the spear hits the wall behind him. You know, and the whole thing's like, uh, what just happened? You know what just happened? David's bubble burst. Saul missed David, but he hit the bubble. <laughs> you know, that, that's inflating all up around David. And I want you to understand something, that at this moment... David's life has changed forever. Things are never again going to go back to the way they were in, in verse uh, 10 or verse 9. This, he, he, he cannot go backwards in this thing. He is in. God has just effectively taken what was on the wheel, this potter's wheel, and he just went and, and took the first blow. Whoa! And things start to wobble. And David's secure, you know, outlook understanding, forecast of his life, just went, whoa, and the whole thing just twisted on David. And so it says in verse 12 that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and he was departed from Saul. Now, whenever there's an anointing in someone's life, there's going to be a spear because the devil doesn't like when someone's anointed by God to fulfill their purposes. And the devil's going to do what he can to try to knock that person down. But it says, nevertheless, the Lord was with him. Therefore, it says in verse 13, because of Saul's fear of David, Saul removed him from him and made him his captain over a thousand. So this is a demotion in a sense. It's a, it's a promotion that is a demotion. He's put over a thousand, which is more than just being over the men of war, but he's out of the palace, which is a demotion out of Saul's presence. And so he went out and he came in before the people. And David behaved himself wisely in all his ways 
and uh, and the Lord was with him. And so David continues now in this wisdom that, that he has. Now, what, is it, what does it mean that David behaved himself wisely? What does wisdom look like in the circumstance that David is in at this point in his life? First, first of all, the wisdom of David is that he did not let the actions of Saul cut down his effectiveness in his calling. He didn't let the actions of Saul reduce his effectiveness in his calling. Now, Saul's aim at this point is to try to diminish David, right? And, and David could very easily let that happen. He could say, well, I better walk soft. I better, I better hide in the shadows. I better not be as, be as forthright. I better turn the volume down somewhat. David doesn't do that. He's a slayer of 10,000s by God's ordination. He's going to continue to be a slayer of 10,000s. He's not going to become a slayer of 999 just to keep peace with Saul. And so he doesn't allow Saul to make him small. And then the other thing that David did that is very wise is that he did not defend himself in the ears of Saul's servants, nor did he cut Saul down in the ears of the servants. He didn't say, that wicked, crazy king, his days are numbered, and I'm going to, you wait and see what happens to him in 10 years, where I'll be and where he'll be. He doesn't do that. That's wisdom. David holds, Saul is still the king. He's still God's king. And out of surrender to God, he keeps Saul in that position in his heart. He, he uh, um, was wise. And so Saul was afraid of David uh, because the Lord was with him. And, and because he was departed from Saul. And so uh, verse 15, it says, Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him. So this is the second time it tells us that Saul was afraid. Two times it's told us that the Lord was with David. And two times it's told us that Saul is afraid of David. But Israel and Judah loved David. And here's why. Because he went out and came in before them. Now that's a, 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 a term that, talks of the military campaign that David was when he led the soldiers out, he did the job, and then he led the soldiers back. He went out and he came in. He was a servant. He was a soldier. He was thorough. He was successful in, in the things that he did, and it provoked love and uh, enduring affection from the people that he was over, the people that he was serving, because he was uh, giving himself completely to the work that was before him. And so Saul said to David, Behold, my elder daughter Mirab, her will I give you to wife, only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul said, let not my hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. So Saul now plots to kill David for the first time. And he's going to do it by uh, setting a honey trap, in, in a sense. He's going to say, I'll give you my oldest daughter. You go out and fight for me. And, and Saul's hoping that somehow in the battle here, David's going to be taken out. And so David said to Saul, who am I and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? But it came to pass at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, to wife. And so David fulfills the term that was set out by Saul in, in, in terms of how long uh, would be. And, and this Mirab is never given to David. So Saul goes back on his promise, gives her to someone else. And David doesn't complain about it. He doesn't say anything. 
But it says in verse 20 that Michael, or Michelle, I hate saying Michael because it just sounds so masculine for a woman, but uh, <laughs> you get the idea. Saul's daughter loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul said, I will give him her that she may be a snare to him. Now, you know, sometimes you look at that and you think, what kind of woman was this? <laughs> you know, that, that Saul's like, oh, well, I know how to get under David's skin. I got a daughter. Let me tell you about her. It's not the idea. The idea is, okay, well, the Mirab plan didn't work. And so I'll use uh, Michal. And she'll be the snare that causes David to be killed by the Philistines, so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Wherefore, Saul said to David, you shall this day be my son-in-law in the one of the two. So if not, hey, you Mirab, eh, Michal, whatever, you, you, either way, you'll get someone. And Saul commanded his servants, saying, commune with David secretly, and say, behold, the king has delight in you, which is a lie. And all his servants love you, which is true. Now, therefore, be the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, Seemeth it to you a light thing to be the son-in-law of the king? Seeing that I am a poor man and lightly esteemed. Don't you love David's humility? You know, just the genuineness. He's, I know who I am. I'm just a kid. I'm from Bethlehem. And I have eight older brothers. I'm, I'm a nobody. And to, to be the king's son-in-law? And so the servants of Saul told him, saying, On this manner David spake. <coughs> and Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desireth not any dowry. In those days you would pay, you know. But... A hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Wow, they were living in different days, weren't they? <laughs> you know? hot, hot commodity in Israel in those days. A hundred Philistine uh, foreskins for the, uh, to be avenged of the king's enemies. But here was the reason. Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Now, there's only two ways that you acquire a hundred Philistine foreskins. You're either a really good negotiator... Because it's really hard, <laughs> it's really hard to get someone to give those up, you know. <laughs> or the other way <laughs> is that is that you kill them and you take it, <laughs> you know. And, and obviously, obviously, that's what uh, that's what Saul wants, and that's what David is going to have to do in this whole thing. And so um, you prove that it's a Philistine that you've killed because a, an Israelite wouldn't have a foreskin, and you prove that they're dead because you're producing something. Uh, that's why Saul wants these things. And so um, verse 26, it says, And when his servants told David these words... It pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law, and the days were not expired. It's still within the, the time that was given. Wherefore, David arose, and he went, he and his men, and they slew of the Philistines 200 men. So David's an extra miler. If someone bids you to go one mile, go with him too. David doubles the amount that's asked for, and he brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full count to the king. Don't want to see the tape of that. That he might be the king's son-in-law, and Saul then gave him Michal, his daughter, to wife. And here's the summation of where we are at with David uh, come the end of, the, of this chapter. It says, and Saul saw and knew. 
So it's, 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 it's doubled here. He didn't just see it, but now he sees it and he knows it, that the Lord was with David. Now, I want you to pause for just a second because we know the end of the story. We know that we're talking about King David. We know what's going to happen to him. David doesn't know this at this point in his life at all. He doesn't know how anything is going to work out at all. And three times in this chapter, it tells us that the Lord was with David. And we can agree. We could say, oh, yeah, we could see that. We see it because we know the end of the story. But I want you to think about what's happened to David in this chapter. First of all, in this chapter, he's had the song of the women happen, which was actually a terrible thing for, for David, the fact that these women sang this song. If David had any mind at all when he heard that song, he was going, oh, no. Oh, don't do that. Don't, don't, no, 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 don't do that. Because what that then led to was the turning of Saul against him. Which then led to Saul making attempt at David's life. Two attempted, actually four attempted murders in this chapter that happened to David. Twice at the hand of the javelin and twice at the hand of the Philistine, Saul has tried to kill David. Four times in this chapter of his life. We see also in David that he was demoted. He lost his office in the palace and was put back out in the field. He went from full time on the staff to, to, to a lesser position in things. And, 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 and all of this is happening. And yet, three times in this chapter, it says that the Lord was with David. So you take what David is seeing happen in his life right now, death attempt, bad turn of events, <laughs> lose my job, <laughs> someone's trying to kill me. And, and the Bible says that the Lord was with David. What gives? If the Lord is with David, why are all these terrible things beginning to happen within his life? Because God needs to shape this young man, David. Why is David placed with Saul? The answer is so that every bit of the Saul that exists within the heart of David might be removed. And God is using the difficult things that David is beginning to suffer to add to him the good things that he's going to need to be the king or subtract from him the bad things that will make him a bad king. The things that happen to us in our life that we look at as setbacks are oftentimes the blessings of God in our life to take out of our life the things that don't belong there. Have you ever been in the presence of someone that you really don't like the way they are, the way they treat you? You know, they, I mean, they just treat you like the scum of the earth or they domineer over you or they, they insult you or they berate you or you get around a person that's constantly complaining or, or constantly negative. And, and what do you, when you come away from being around a person like that, what are you thinking in your mind? I mean, besides that, I don't like that person and wish they were dead, you know, <laughs> exaggerating a little. What you come away from that with is, you know, come hell or high water, I don't know what's going to happen in my life. I don't want to be like that. I, I don't want to be like that person. I don't want to act like that. And that's exactly what God is doing in this young man, David, by putting him in such close proximity to Saul in David's preparation. He is showing David what happens to a king who doesn't deal with the darkness in his own heart. And the result of that is that David's going to deal with the darkness in his own heart. So don't look at the negative things that happen to you in your life as setbacks or evidence that God is not with you. 
but rather acknowledge the fact that God is with you because he says he's with you and allow those negative experiences to do what it is that God has ordained for them to do in your life. It's always for the good. Now, what blows my mind about David and all this is his incredible optimism. Not once does he complain about the difficulty of the circumstances. He sees every one of these setbacks as opportunities in his life. And you know how he can do that? You know how we can do that? It's because he knew that God was for him and not against him. When we doubt the goodness of God towards us, we see setbacks as negatives. When we're confident that God is for us and that God is with us, we're allowed then to see setbacks as positives. God is allowing this as a blessing in my life. Maybe I don't understand why, but his path is in the seas. I can't define why, but I know that he's for me and with me. Pessimism is an incredible defense, but is a crippling vice. It's a defense because pessimism guards us against bad things. If we're prepared for it, right? Oh, I knew this was going to happen. And, and I'm expecting bad things to happen in my life. Then I'm not disappointed when they come. So pessimism is very much a defense mechanism in our lives. But it's a detriment to our spiritual progress. Because it expects the bad and cannot see the good in something that appears to be bad. What does God say about everything that happens in our life? It's working together for what? For good. That's right. And we must, if we're going to grow, begin to see setbacks as opportunities and not as setbacks. And that's what David did. The Lord was with David. And, 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 um, and then it says in verse 29, And Saul was yet the more afraid of David, and Saul became David's enemy continually. He was consumed. And the princes of the Philistines went forth, and it came to pass after they went forth that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was much set by or much relied upon. Now, three times in this chapter, it says that the Lord was with David. And three times in this chapter, it says that Saul was afraid. And, 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 and three times in this chapter, it says that David grew in wisdom. So you see Saul growing in fear. And by the end of this chapter, that word fear means terrified of David. And you see David growing in wisdom and the Lord being with him. And so you see a man very much on the decline because of his jealousy and the darkness of his heart that he's not willing to deal with. And you see a man very much on the rise, though there are apparent setbacks in his life. And so as we continue, we're going to see God begin now to strip David down of everything in his life until it's David and God. And that's where God is, is ultimately bringing him. That's where God is ultimately bringing us. That's where he has to. It must be us and God. Every other thing must be removed. Not because God wants to take anything away from us, but because all of those things are going to hinder us from what is the greatest thing of all. The presence of God in our lives alone and Him bringing us into the position that He's called us into. We'll continue next week 
chapter 19 as we see uh, David shaped into the greatest king that will ever be, aside from Jesus himself. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and pray that you would take the things that we have seen and that you would add them to us. Lord, hear the position of our heart and the response of it as we hear this study. Where there are areas in our heart of darkness, jealousies, angers, rages, lusts, things that hinder. Oh, that we would not be like Saul and bury those things, but that we might bring them into the light, that they might be removed. And that, Father, you would begin to show us that the things that are happening to us are for our good and not for our destruction. Give us grace, O God, that we wouldn't fall by the wayside, but that we would arise to the call, the upward call, the high call of God in Christ Jesus. Make us your men, your representatives, your lights in this dark world. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.